This episode of Untold is with Melbourne-based travel impresario, Mr. Adam Schwab. Adam tells us about some of his early life entrepreneurial flourishes. Adam also shares how reading the law and his early career as a solicitor provided him with a super foundation for business and allowed him to hone his eye for precision and attention to detail, which has helped steer the success of many of his businesses. Adam covers some successful early ventures, including the inspiration behind his service apartment business in Melbourne, which stemmed from an encounter with a Scottish backpacker who had been dealt a particularly raw deal in a condo in St Kilda. Luxury escapes emanated from Adam and his co-founders comprehending that their digital marketing consulting business had the potential for bigger baskets and huge growth runway through concentrating their efforts intensely on the travel business. Adam's colleague Mark headed up to Thailand to source product and the first Thailand week of sales received an incredible response. The Katatani Resort alone generated a few million dollars in new sales and the team had a glimpse into how successful luxury escapes had the potential to be. In 2009, looking from the outside in, Australia had a mature and well-served travel market with established travel agents and online powerhouses. Despite this establishment, Adam and Luxury Escapes managed to significantly disrupt and uncovered a hugely successful formula which has grown into a formidable business with over 3 million subscribers today. The power and influence of the Luxury Escapes business is beautifully illustrated by Adam through the example of the Maldives, which has doubled arrivals from Australia with the upside delta all directly attributable from Luxury Escapes campaigns. As well as covering new strategic initiatives for the group, which include a new hotel marketplace, Adam also shares some business insights, talks about his daily rituals and drivers, and covers his passion for philanthropy and how he is passionate about supporting Australia's next wave of entrepreneurs. We also talk briefly about Adam's book called Pigs at the Trough, covering the global financial crisis, and his new podcast on entrepreneurship called From Zero. From Zero is looking to leave a positive legacy, namely allowing potential business owners to learn about funding, available resources, potential approaches, and ultimately inspiring them to launch and start their own business. Enjoy Untold with Adam Schwab. Thank you, Adam. Gr growing up in Melbourne, did you in your teenage years or younger years always aspire to, to develop a, a career reading law? Yeah, I think I did. <clears throat> I think I did. My, uh, my cousin and my uncle were both lawyers. Uh, 
and, and law, this is back in the sort of 90s and entrepreneurialism wasn't really a thing. So it was, you either become a doctor, you become a lawyer, you become an accountant, assuming you, you, you had sort of reasonable marks at school. So uh, yeah, I think from the age of probably 13, uh, I, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer uh, and then up to going into law school and, and becoming a lawyer for a couple of years. And it's certainly, certainly a, less, a less good job when you do it than what you think it'll be. Uh, but but it, was, it was a great background. And when you look back at your career now and you're, you're really a, earlier life, were there any entrepreneurial flourishes or things that, that you did in maybe as a kid that you thought would have been slightly, not necessarily legal leading, but towards making a quick buck? Yeah, there was, there was a few things. So I think I, my very first little entrepreneurial endeavor was probably when I was about 11 or 12 on a school bus. And my, my bus stop happened to be at a milk bar and I'd occasionally buy lollies for myself. And then people on the bus, fellow captive market would ask for them. So I tended to buy extras and, and then sell them for a, for a small margin. So that was probably the first thing. Or that was a, a pretty small, small, small enterprise. Then me and my, my actually co-founder in, in Luxury Escapes, uh, Jeremy, our first caught semi-proper business was uh, in our final year of school. And for, for those who, who sort of understand the Australian school system, even back then, you had to do a lot of big assignments, you know, what English people called A-levels, what we call year 12. Um, and so we had to do a bunch of these big assignments, like 30, 40, 50 page assignments, they're called CATs. Um, stood for something, common assessment task, I think. So what 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 we did in when we were when we were doing these cats is you'd find examples from the year before. So smart or smart people who had done obviously the questions and the, the content was slightly different, but you got an understanding of this is how it needed to look. So we thought that was a really good idea, but it was all paper based. You had to go into the go into the city and downtown and and go to some dodgy shop and buy it for 50 bucks, which was photocopy piece of paper. We thought, well, it's it's um, digital age why don't we burn it to a cd-rom which was just starting this is back in 1997 so what we did is we got our own cats we got some friends of ours who were really smart we put them onto a cd-rom and this is in the early days of cds and found somebody to burn it and made sort of a thousand versions and went to a careers expo or so a final year of school expo and sold uh, two three hundred of them um and that was what we probably made on a three four five grand each i can't remember and that was our first probably genuine entrepreneurial entrepreneurial endeavor as, as kids. And then I did the same thing for the law notes a few years later uh, while I was at law school. So there's a few bits and pieces sort of in our younger years that were semi, semi-successful ventures. So similar to the, the gentleman on the character Suits, who's, uh, who's <laughs> yeah. sitting the other people's well, accounts. Oh, 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 thankfully, I am. Um, providing the resources that they needed. Thankfully, I stayed out of jail, but I think he was a, he, he actually sat exams for people, whereas we, what we did was 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 legal, although frowned upon by, <laughs> by and at one stage, when I did, uh, when I did it for law school, um, uh, there were so many people using my notes that the Dean of Law banned people from using them. So it was made illegal by regulation rather than being generally, although I wasn't sitting exams for people like that, but we were selling in the in fact in the, in the in the law bookstore, so there was always famous legal publishers, Butterworth um, Law Book, and then was there was my CD ROM sitting there. So uh, yeah, that, that was actually that was more successful. That probably made a bit more money on that one um, than, than the, the year twelve one, and that that was still just a very much a side. We had uh, multiple jobs while uni, while doing this on the side. So there was, there was plenty going on. 
so in essence if if people had missed lots of lectures or they hadn't shown up they should buy your cd-rom and, and they're the best in class notes they'd have been able to receive from the from the actual lectures exactly okay yeah, people get their own notes anyway so anybody because it's laws open books so you need to take a set of notes in so uh we just had a really good set so it just it just made it easy for people to 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 study the right stuff so it was actually kind of thing that should have been encouraged yes. in all fairness but but for whatever reason wasn't but sold plenty of copies and, and did, did it right fantastic and in terms of your travel when you were growing up where, where did you use the vacation or take holidays and what did travel mean to you our travel was pretty uneventful. We, we were never, uh, we were very middle class uh, in Australia. So we, what I, I certainly remember as a kid was getting in the car. My dad had a combi van, sort of a, so I had eight seats. So me and my sister would each have three seats to ourselves. And we drive to Sydney. So I was, I'm in Melbourne. That was a, probably 11 and 12 hour drive. And occasionally might go to sort of Adelaide direction. Um, and that was generally our holiday. So it was generally just driving somewhere locally. We I think I went on one plane before I was 18 ever. So, uh, it just wasn't a done thing. It was expensive. There was four of us. Um, we just didn't, didn't do it. And it was, there were certainly some kids that would go overseas, go to Bali and the like, but that was never really out. It's very different these days. You have cheap airfares, you have sites like Russia Escapes, but you just didn't have stuff like that back in back when we were growing up. Uh, so we'd drive to a Sydney or a Marimbula or a Robe in South Australia and, and tend to sort of holiday in a sort of self-contained holiday villa type place. And there's so much to see already domestically in Australia, right? That a lot of people are discovering now that maybe previously had gone overseas. Yeah, for sure. I guess the difficulty in Australia these days, Australia's actually probably more expensive than many overseas destinations compared to Thailand, Bali, even Singapore and Vietnam uh, are all far more inexpensive than Australia is now. And Australia suffers from a significant lack of supply, especially at the high end. There's a handful of places, but it's, we're a very undersupply market. Compared to, if you look at the UK or Europe, um, obviously the US, uh, a lot, obviously in Asia as well, there's a lot of supply of accommodation. We just don't really have it. And then post-university post and, and you reading the law and obviously your excellent law notes being sold on CD-ROM, you entered professional life as a solicitor. Uh, what were some of the key learnings that, that reading the law and working as a solicitor actually gave you as a framework and the ability to to become such a successful entrepreneur it's one of those things I, I, there are actually a lot of lawyers who become uh business people uh, and law and to an extent certainly consulting and and even banking but what law really gives is is two things i think one that gives uh confidence so you, you certainly never get bullied. If I ever receive a legal letter of any form or send a legal letter, you really understand what the other person's thinking. You don't get scared. You don't get cower. Um, someone can write me the most aggressive legal letter in the world. I'll probably rip it up, chuck in the bin. You kind of understand where you stand. Even if you don't know that specific part of law, you understand the notion of, of damage. And, and that's what effectively the law of tort is, is evolves as damage. How do you cause damage? And, and have, has damage been caused to you? Uh, which is really important. The other thing that law gives you, apart from that bravado, is it's just a real um, understanding of precision. You've got to get, and if, if, as a junior lawyer, which I was, I was the most junior lawyer at, at the biggest firm in Australia. And what you're doing is really sort of secretarial work to many degrees, and not to diminish the job that secretaries do, which is in many cases better than lawyers, but you're essentially putting folders together for lawyers. You're, you're doing very basic sort of early level research. You're, you're drafting big documents. It's not overly intellectual in a sense of being difficult, but you've got to get it right. There's no margin for error. 
if you're preparing a, a folder for a Queen's Council going to court, you've got to get every page right. You've got to get the fault, the content, have the contents right. They may look at it for one second, they might look at it all. You've got to get it right. And that level of precision uh, is necessary in, in law. But if you go to business, obviously, which I am now, and you haven't been in law, people tend not to have that level of precision because it's just not necessary. So what you do learn is you've got to get things right. So now if I'm preparing a board report or, or communication to customers, sort of understand the level of precision you need to get to, which people who haven't worked in a, in a field like law, you just probably just don't have that level of understanding. Uh, so they're the two big big benefits you get from being a lawyer. Um, if you ask me what, what should what should your son or what should my son do? I think I think law is a fantastic thing to, to learn, spend one or two years in. I wouldn't spend any more than a couple of years being a lawyer because it's a, a incredibly boring and B becomes highly stifling to risk. But as a background, I think it's, a, it's exceptional. Thank you. So fantastic levels of attention to detail. So it, it's great to hear that and the, the precision. In terms of, are you able to share the story of how you and your co-founders met and then some of the early business ventures you engaged in prior to Luxury Escapes? So J Jeremy, just myself, we actually went to school together. So we'd known, we did that other, that, that other business, the CD-ROM business we talked about. So we'd known each other for a long time. Uh, and we had a couple of other co-founders come along. One was a friend of mine from uni, another one was a, Josh, whose business we bought. So Mark and Josh came on board through the journey, but uh, Jeremy and I essentially, we had our, our, our first real business. So after I, I was a lawyer for a couple of years, and. A couple of years in, Jess said to me, oh, we should, we should look for do, do a business. And, and I said, yeah, it sounds, sounds good. But we didn't know what we were going to do. This is 2004, so well before the days where entrepreneurialism was a thing. So nowadays, people want to start a business. There's, there's Y Combinator accelerators. There's, there's lots of different pathways to refining the business and then obviously raising capital. In our day, in 04, there just was none of that. So an entrepreneur in Australia anyway, when you said you're an entrepreneur, people thought of, the criminals like Alan Bond and Christopher Skate. So it was, a, it was a dirty word. It wasn't, now you're an entrepreneur, you're like Mark Zuckerberg, Evan Spiegel, Larry and Sergey, it's a uh, Reed Hastings. It's a, it's a much more glamorous profession. Uh, there's the shared working spaces. There's, there's lots of cool stuff as an entrepreneur now. Back in our day, none, there was none of that. It was the opposite. Uh, but that, So we, 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 we left, well, Jeremy had already resigned. I left a, a blue chip law firm. And the idea we had, I got this idea for a, an ex-girlfriend of mine who, had, who was from Scotland originally and had friends staying from Scotland. And, and they were staying in a really dingy apartment in, in a suburb called St Kilda, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, Gareth, in, in Melbourne. And this is a disgusting apartment. It's amazing places. You've got some, some not-so-nice places. This is in the, in the not-so-nice range. Uh, and we were, I was 23, 24, and still, still lived at home at this point, although I had lived in Canada for a year or two and, and the US. Um, anyway, I saw this, this sort of hovel of an apartment, and these girls were paying... $150 per night, per week each. So my initial thought was, oh, I reckon we can do this a lot a lot more nicely. So I said to Jez and Jez agreed and we just sort of organically um, rented our very first apartment and got people to stay in it. There were a couple, five English guys and we came up with a, effectively a business was for high-end backpackers. So someone who's from the UK or Europe or, or the US or Asia and staying in Melbourne for more than call it a month. So you didn't want to stay in a hostel. You couldn't get your own lease. We kind of found that middle market. So we, we started creating apartments for high-end backpackers, most of them university educated. It's all very, very decent people. Um, and we, so we did that. We eventually got to 40 or 50 apartments. We were making reasonable money and then realized we needed to pivot this to a corporate apartments model because the, the backpacker apartments, even though they were great backpackers, had limited shelf life. So we pivoted to a, a corporate apartments model. So similar thing whereby we've 
rent an apartment, sub, sub rent it out to a, a business or a, an individual executive, and they stay there for one month to four or five years. And we just provide all the furnishings and the connections and cleaning and all that kind of stuff. So it was long stay corporate accommodation. And we started that business in sort of, again, 05, 06. And we actually still have it to this day, although it's a lot smaller than it, than it used to be. Uh, and we actually, as part of that business, we bought half a dozen properties utilizing leverage at the time. And then we aren't big fans of having a lot of debt. So we, we ended up selling those properties and having this million dollar windfall. So we took that million bucks and thought, well, what can we do next? And that was sort of how before Lions of Luxury Escapes started. So it was really an organic process of pivoting, 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 working pretty hard for five or six years in a, in a fairly non-scalable offline business, just learning, learning the trade. And it was our apprenticeship to, to business really. And then how did the, the move from the, the focus on the, the corporate apartments move into luxury escape? Yeah, so the mid, the mid um, the midpoint there, so if we went from apartments to, we created a business that was effectively a marketing, online marketing business for, for small business. So we'd work with small and medium business. So we'd work with um, restaurants and day spas and, and B&B, uh, B&B, uh, bed and breakfast hotels and, and how to get them new customers. And often through, uh, online marketing and through discounting. Uh, and we, so we started doing that, but realized travel was the best part of that business. And that business we thought made lots of sense for the customers, it was actually really good for the vendors, uh, but it was small basket sizes and, and lots of different vendors. But we realized with travel pretty quickly that A, you're working with really reputable brands. So they really cared about the customer experience and B, the average basket size, the average purchase is upwards of a couple of grand. So the unit economics, of that business, which is a, you know, economics is a fancy way of saying cost to acquire a customer versus value of that customer over that lifetime, were much better than the, the local business. So we, we, we still have that local business and we, it's a JV with another company now, but we, we realized the travel business worked even better. So what, what we essentially do in Luxury Escapes and, and the precursor was we do a couple of things that we saw, we actually solved two problems. The, pro- the problem we solve, we solve problems for customers and we solve problems for hotels. So the problem we solve for customers is twofold. The first problem customers have is buying travel is really hard. And obviously, as you, as you know, Dad, it's if you if you, there's two main places to buy travel. Uh, the first place people want to travel is OTAs these days. So you might go to Booking.com or Expedia. Amazing businesses, super profitable. If you're a customer wanting to be inspired, be curated, they're not the place to go. There's 500,000 properties on there. Yeah, you've got reviews and ratings, but, but realistically, it's very hard to, to know where to go, especially if you don't have a very specific region in mind. But OTA is obviously great as a, as a market, as an open marketplace. The other sort of extreme is travel agents. And travel agents, if you're a high-end travel agent, that serves a real purpose because you can, if you can afford to spend $20,000, you're going to get amazing service from a travel agent. The problem is if you're spending a couple of grand or even less, it's really hard for a travel agent to provide a level of service that provides curation and inspiration. So if you go to, a, in Australia, a flight centre, uh, Liberty Travel in the US, which is their US business, they're obviously been historically been great businesses, but provide a pretty limited service to a customer and that you're probably being served by a 23-year-old who hasn't been to a place you want to go to. It's probably pushing what the wholesale is going to push because they've got the biggest override. So it's, it's not really providing great curation and inspiration for a customer. So what we do, what we historically have done in Luxury Escapes, and our business is evolving this year, and we'll talk about that later, but what we've done historically with Luxury Escapes is do what we call flash sales. So we'll sell 40 or 50 products, so a really limited range of products, but really good products, and do lots of work around the curation, selection, and content. So we'll visit every property, we'll spend time with the GM, we'll film it, we'll write about it, 
So we'll, we'll provide a lot of inspiration for our customers that you won't get from any other um, travel agent being online or offline. And even better is the way we work is we're only on sale for a really limited period of time at a discount of around 30 to 35%. And that's value adds as well as discount on price. So as a customer, you're getting great curation and you're getting a really good price at some of the best brands and best hotels on earth. And the way we're able to do that is through the problem we solve for our hotel partners. And the problem we solve for hotel partners is essentially we break up what can be an agency cost and, and we provide really in-depth marketing services. So if you look at it as a, if you own a hotel, as we know, there's, there's brands who run hotels and do an amazing job operating hotels and building that goodwill. Uh, so you've got these, they do a fantastic job at a lot of stuff, but what brands aren't amazing at is marketing for specific hotels. So brands have to manage the problem. If you're a Hilton or a Marriott or an Accor, you've got to look after 50,000 plus hotels in your portfolio globally. And your great skill is in operating a hotel, developing the hotel with a partner, but probably not in marketing that specific hotel, especially during need. It's just, it's just not possible for a brand. So the only way individual hotels, let's look at one of our great partners, I don't want to mention by name, but some of our great partners across Asia, for example, might want to get a lot more Australian customers, but the only way they can do it is by dropping their prices. So they can drop their price on every channel, and it's usually parity to a large degree. And all that happens is just smashes your ADR and, and you, don't, you end up back in, in status quo and maybe your competitors drop their prices and it probably doesn't help you. So it's really hard for an individual hotel, even a cluster of hotels, to create incremental demand. But what we do is we tell a hotel, and this is what we're obviously doing in real life, is we have a, a very engaged, targeted database of, of a few million people, mostly in Australia, but now globally to an extent as well. These are generally high-end travellers that we've created over a period of, uh, of eight years. So what we'll do is we can move an enormous amount of product in a really short period of time. So what most of our partners tell us is we sell as many rooms as booking.com does, but in two weeks rather than 52 weeks. So we can move a huge amount of product. Not only do we bring in a lot of revenue, that in itself is never here or there. We bring in revenue when hotels need it. So we'll bring in a bunch of revenue outside the peak Christmas week, outside the school holiday weeks, and we'll surcharge those, or even black out those really big periods. So we'll bring, we'll, we'll funnel revenue and, and customers where hotels need it. That's, that's the first obvious benefit is lots of money and, and very little, and it's incremental. So it's very little, it's not displacing existing customers, which is really important. The second really good, important thing we do for our hotel partners, and the reason why we, they give us a, a price break is we tend to be a, a, an early bird channel. So we'll sell at least on average six months out, but often a year and a year and a half out. So that, what that allows is smart revenue managers can manage that. We're effectively become like air crew, but for leisure. So we'll go take your base from 1% to 30% and suddenly you're yielding up off that higher 30% base. So a smart revenue manager absolutely loves working with Luxury Escapes and they'll, and they'll time their Luxury Escapes campaign accordingly. And they won't be worrying about last minute OGA bookings for 80% of, of their customers because they've got that big base and they can yield up. The third thing we give is we don't never just sell a bed in the room. We sell breakfasts and dinners and massages and transfers and, and the like. So we allow hotels to sweat all their assets and much more effectively and um, profitably sweat their assets. So instead of having a restaurant that's got one person, a restaurant's got 40 people in it, you're paying the same amount of rent, you're paying the same amount of wages, you're paying probably the same amount of food with wastage. So we're able to really increase the profitability, really increase the rev par for hotels. And the fourth thing we give is just amazing uh, PR and brand coverage. If you, if you go on a Luxury Escapes campaign, it's only 3 million people have heard of you in Australia around the world. So. We give those four really important benefits to hotel. We basically make them more EBITDA, so make owners more EBITDA. And in, in return, hotels give us a really good package that they don't give anyone else. And we pass that package on to our, our customer base. So it becomes a real win-win. So our customers get 
curation, ideation, and great pricing, and hotels get more EBITDA. And we simply sit in the middle, effectively facilitating that transaction. Fantastic. And it's um, can you recall some of the early early sales where you you put put a resort maybe in Australia or Asia, and you you didn't know at that time whether you should pivot from the condo and apartment business into travel, but then you went, oh my goodness, this is this is the secret sauce. We've got something here that is scalable, bigger basket size, and we're giving an offering that people like. Yeah, it have it evolved over time. Uh, one of our third, I mean, we ran Mark out, who was about running our sales team, ran a tie week. So he went to Thailand and, and got four tie properties. And the one that jumps to mind is, is Catatani, which is a great property in, in Cata Beach in Phuket. And we, we ended up running this a couple of times. I think we sold something like, uh, I could be slightly wrong, a couple of million dollars worth of product in a couple of weeks. This is early days in the business. And I think then we realized, hold on, this. This is, I think we're onto something here. Uh, there was what we call the business product market fit. So what, what we're doing was appealing to customers. And we just started doing more and more product and we made a lot of mistakes. We, we, we still make mistakes every day, but we just got better and better at it. We got better and better at making hotels look really good. Um, we'd send film crews over. We'd, Mark would go over there and write. And we'd both write. Um, we almost like a magazine article about a hotel. So similar to what you see in Condé Nast, except you're getting it on on a transactional website. So we made our hotel partners look really, really good. Uh, and even, so even if a customer didn't buy that property, that next time they go, they're going to Phuket. They say, oh, I remember Katakani. This place must be good. So it's that brand recognition and recall that we give. We don't charge for that to our hotel partners, but it's a real benefit that we give and that, that's sort of grown through the business. We just basically started working with a lot of independent hotels. And then two, three, four years later, started working with all the bigger brands. And now I have a great relationship with, with most, if not all, almost all the brands globally. And we still work with lots of independent properties and we love working with both independent properties and branded properties. I think for us, it's how do we get great content, great properties in front of our, our big audience and how do we ensure we're making money for our, our owner operator partners? That's excellent. And, and you mentioned um, in, in the, the little intro there that um, some of the existing travel operators and the way Australians could book travel did, did exist. When you were speaking to potential investors and, and your co-founders and everyone else, was there a, a feedback that Australia was already well catered for and had a mature travel market? Or did everyone sort of buy into the vision that, that you just sold that there's still an opportunity to be able to put together a limited time sale of luxury product and, and that market will be there for people to buy? Because it's been you're talking nine years ago and it's not something that has been, you know, goes back two decades. It's, it's a fairly modern business that you've, you've developed and really found a sweet spot that people would potentially be cynical about. It's a re really good question. And, and to be honest, we, we kind of fell into it. We weren't, we weren't experts in travel at all beforehand. Obviously we had a, a travel type business, but we were on the operator side, not the marketing side. So we, we were certainly not, travel experts in it. And we kind of just fell into it and, and learned a lot along the way. Uh, it wasn't intentional. We never intentionally went into this business. Uh, we kind of just had a product that people liked to buy and just started doing more of it. So I think if we, if, 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 if I told you we had this great strategy, that we had this great strategy back in 2011, and this is what we're going to do, I'd be lying because we had none of that. Uh, we actually, the problems I told you about a few minutes ago, we only discovered after we started the business, it was a a reverse to how people start businesses now. They have a problem, they go out and solve it. We kind of just did our thing and we're like, oh, actually, we are solving a really important problem here from both sides of the marketplace. 
and let's keep doing it. Let's get better. And I think one thing we are good at, and this is probably a trait amongst entrepreneurs who have kept the business running, is we're great at knowing when we're right and great at knowing when we're wrong. So when we're, when we're wrong, we're very quick to, to stop doing that and pivot and learn from our mistakes. When we're right, we're very keen to invest much more heavily in, in whatever's been the successful idea. And, and we're pretty fast learners. Uh, even as the business gets bigger, we're still pretty quick to evolve. And we did a, a very significant pivot last year uh, as COVID having partly coincidental, partly due to COVID. Uh, but but yeah, so we, we, I think we're just, we're just quick learners and, and we, we don't plan five, 10 years out in advance. Uh, we, we try and react to customers as quickly as we can. Excellent. If you look at, at some of your milestone accomplishments over the, the past nine years, you mentioned tie week, but what, what were some other early wins? And in terms of growth, has it been steadily linear or have there been some years that have grown mm. faster than others? I think till COVID, it's relatively linear. Uh, there's been ups and downs through the journey, but we've, we've, we've grown pretty pretty consistently over the eight, eight, 10 years we've been around as luxury escapes. Um, we are constantly evolving though. It's a, it's a, we're not a business that stands still. Uh, with our new marketplace we launched a few months ago that we've been working on for a year, a significant change in how we, how we, the product we sell and how we sell to customers. Uh, so yeah, we, we are a business that is continually changing, continually learning. So I'm not, I'm not it's, yeah, I think the, we're, we're still a very entrepreneurial business and whatever our customers and our clients are, are wanting, we'll try and meet that. But and part of our job is, part of my job as a founder CEO is, uh, as Steve Jobs, so you've got to understand what customers want before I tell you. You've got to be able to understand what, 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 what's important to customers. We're working on some really cool products that we think customers will love and the hotels will really benefit from. So, we're, and that's what we're spending the last year on through COVID. So, we're, we're in the few travel businesses globally that have increased their staff, we've got 20% more team members than pre COVID. Uh, and we're doing that because it's a really aggressive tech push to, to make sure we're coming out of COVID. Uh, we're in an incredible position and our customers will have an incredible, incredible product to be able to use. When you think of um, Luxury Escape's purpose, do you feel proud that you mentioned when you were going on vacation, you would go to Adelaide or Sydney, but because of Luxury Escape's, that there's been an opportunity for a lot more Australians and the 2 million plus customers that you have, that you've given the opportunity to, to allow families and couples and everything to visit Southeast Asia and further afield, does that make you feel proud of, of some of the travellers that Luxury Escapes have been able to send out globally? Absolutely. I think there's two fronts there and you're spot on. Uh, one of our purposes is to use technology to connect people with fantastic experiences, travel experiences, and that's what we do. So we, we think we're one of the better, more technologically adaptive travel businesses in the world. Uh, obviously there's some great business like Airbnb and, and Booking.com and Expedia who do a great job but we think we, if we're not up there now we certainly will be up there and my expectation is within a year or two we'll have the best product for customers in terms of what customers can buy and how they can buy it with anyone um, so that's, that's that's absolutely really important for us and something that, that means a lot uh, so yeah that combined with bringing down pricing so as we never stayed in a five star hotel as a kid but we could if we, there was a luxury escape because we can make a five-star property, similar price to a four-star property, and still make money for the for the owners. So, yeah, that's that's actually really important. Obviously, we have some very wealthy people who use the site, some some rich listers and billionaires. We've also got people who have been there only ever holiday, and they tell us this is the, the best thing that's ever happened in their life. Or someone, one of our friends said he went on luxury escapes; it was the best holiday he's ever been on. And we get that all the time. 
Uh, we've got a net, net promoter score of 72, which means something like 95% of our customers are happy and recommending us to family and friends. So we think we actually do, we create, we sell happiness. And we think we sell happiness as efficiently as any business in the travel space. And by corollaries, we, we think we make lots of money for hotel owners and operators. So we think that, that operators benefit from, from what we do and owners absolutely benefit from what we do. They make literally millions and millions of dollars from, from running a luxury escape. So I think we're lucky to be a business that creates a genuine win-win-win. And there aren't that many businesses that are lucky enough to be able to do that and that we can be adding value across the whole chain to both clients and customers. Absolutely. And luxury escapes within the organization um, and the approach that you take, there's a lot of uh, behavioral science and the sales that are tied in, if you like, including anchoring and scarcity bias, paradox of choice, social proof, and, and, and many others, which is, is representative of some e-commerce business, but in hotels and travel, it perhaps not so much. Was this a deliberate approach or is there someone within your organization who knew a bit about behavioral science or is it more by accident that it's come about? Yeah, I think it's, it's there's definitely, we don't have any behavioral psychologists in the, in the team. Mark was exceptionally good at that stuff. Um, and Josh and Jeremy and myself, as we're all relatively sensible people. So yeah, our business is really based on that impulse, sense of loss. Uh, as you said, it, it, we, we sell out and now during COVID, we sell out of Australian product within a day or two. So it absolutely is that, that sense of loss and that FOMO that if you don't buy now, you won't, you won't get it. So we, yeah, a lot of our site, especially the flash sales business, and there's pros and cons to flash sales, but from a customer perspective, it is a inspirational purchase. Uh, you've got to, you've got to be quick. If you don't act quickly, you won't get it. And that's also accent helps for the, from the hotel side, but they're not discounting permanently. The last thing you want to do with hotels is drop your pricing through the year. You want to be really targeted with your tactical promotions. And we just act as a, is a super powerful tactical promotion for, for our hotel partners. And almost every hotel that works with us, works with us again, year on year. It's very rare that a hotel sort of has one luxury escape experience and doesn't do it again. The only time they'd ever do that is if some one, one year they're trading bad, then some of they're trading hundred percent and then you, you wouldn't, but that's, that's very rare. It's, it's almost, it's, we become baked into many of our partners uh, marketing plans. In some cases, say it's probably too much. So uh, we can be upwards of 60, 70% of customers for hotels, but, where we like to be is sort of mid single digits, call it five to 6% of our hotel sales, maybe up to 10%, really building that base when they need it. And the critical point is we're almost 100% incremental. So it's when we serve our customers, 97% weren't going to the hotel. I hadn't even heard of the hotel until they bought it from us. And 70% of people weren't ever going to the country. So we actually change people's purchasing and traveling behavior. And I think the great example of that is Australians, the Maldives. So before we started selling Maldives about four years ago, around 18,000 Australians went to the Maldives each year. Now about 36,000 people go, that whole delta is luxury escape. So we've doubled the size of the Maldives customer base from Australia simply by selling them. So we can genuinely change people's travel behaviours. Instead of going to Bora Bora, someone's going to Maldives, which is frankly half the price. So instead of going to Queensland or Thailand, maybe you've got to Maldives instead. So we, we genuinely do change purchase and customer behaviour. And also, people who wouldn't have otherwise gone because I thought it was too expensive and now able to go. So it's that incremental sale because travel's elastic and you've just got to be able to get to that elasticity point and that uh, equilibrium where supply and demand crosses over. And often you need to drop the price temporarily. Hotels can't do it without us. So I think we provide a really great service for hotels that are maximize profitability and at the same time being able to offer amazing value to customers. That's an amazing case study. It's uh, 
to, to double the number of travelers to the Maldives, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's amazing. As, as with behavioral science, in terms of design and branding, again, luxury escapes, everything that has been done is with lots of discipline, tremendously clean design, the, the newsletter, the website, everything you can tell a lot of thought has gone into it. Again, was that a key part of the philosophy or was that did that evolve at some point as you realized that you wanted luxury, so everything would need to represent that and all touch points, communication, et cetera, should reflect the approach that you're taking? It did evolve and we just got better at it. We've got some really good UX designers now, by Amanda now, but we've, we definitely have learned along the way. But one of the key reasons for that really clean, high-end look and feel is not necessarily customers, because ultimately Expedia and Booking and Love Holidays, there's a bunch of sites that don't look overly nice, but are very, very effective. But the main reason for the, for the, for the look and feel was more to give comfort to hotels, because hotels understand, especially the big, uh, the big operators, the big brands are very protective of brand, and they don't want to be on a site that's not premium in many cases. Uh, so we work with a lot. We've worked with the likes of Aman, who never worked, barely worked with OTAs. We've worked with the likes of Kapinski and super high-end brands globally. And it's really important to these brands. We make sure that the hotels appear in an environment that's befitting of these five, six, seven-star hotels. So we spend a lot of time making sure that the environment and the and the UX and the UI is is, is immaculate and befitting some of the best hotels in the world. How do you engage and move your two million members through the the purchase yeah, gotcha. funnel and and then? Does your focus tend to be more on customer acquisition or convincing some of the existing members to book more, more frequently? I think the answer very much is both. And that's a challenge for us. We need to make sure that both top of funnel and mid funnel and bottom funnel are optimized. And we're, we're doing a lot of work around that at the moment. It's a big focus for us. It will be a focus for the, for the years to come. Uh, where we are very lucky in that we have an owned, uh, an owned channel in email. And that we send a couple of emails every day and our open rights and click rates are, are market leading. So we're really lucky to have that own channel. So we'll send an email out and suddenly our web truck traffic just goes through the roof. So we're, we're also we're very good at social media and, and digital market and digital marketing in general. So I've got a, a team around that. Uh, so so we're, we're good at both engaging through free channels and paid channels. Uh, and that's, that's a really key area of strength for us. Uh, so we're, we're lucky in that, and even Facebook as well as an own channel, though it does cost to access your channel. We've got 1.4 million plus, or whatever it is on Facebook. We've got hundreds of thousands on Instagram. So we've got these owned channels of customers. So unlike an OTA or a, or a travel agent, we can communicate and we can and do communicate with our customers every day. So even if you don't, and people are always coming to me and saying, oh, I, I, I open your emails every day. Even if they have no intention to travel, it's, it is the ultimate travel port. And they get to see, not only they can see some amazing places, they can actually even potentially buy them if they want to. So it's, yeah, it's that own channel has been really important to our business. Um, it's, a, it's an area we put a lot of focus and attention into. Thank you, Adam. And, and then finally, it, it would be remiss with you on lockdown in Melbourne and myself in lockdown in Singapore. A little bit about how you've managed to adapt to, to COVID. And, and you mentioned the business is evolving and changing. Some of the exciting initiatives or, or new launches that may be coming up if you're allowed to speak to any of them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm glad you asked that. We talked about our flash business model earlier in the, in the piece. And I think what, we, what, we, what we've known for a number of years is, is the flash business model is, is amazing for customers. It's, it's fantastic for hotels, but it's, it's also quite hard work for us. We're constantly finding new, you have to find new hotels, new deals, teams always running, and it's expensive. 
so our profit margin is very low. So people say, oh, you're expensive a channel. Well, guarantee our net margin is a lot lower than than the OTAs. So we, we, we probably are the cheapest provider for, for hotels globally in terms of how much they how much they end up paying because we pay for all the marketing. So instead of having to market, they just give us give us that and, and there's no risk, et cetera, et cetera. But so what, whilst we love the flash business, we realized that we needed to continually evolve as a business. And as we came into COVID, even March last year, uh, it sort of just struck me, there's a few things we're working on and it just sort of synthesized them together, but the key one's market, what we call marketplace. So it seems to be coming, going from a, a flash business where if you want to buy Atlantis to buy, we sell it for two weeks a year. If, if you don't look on the site for that two weeks, it's kind of bad luck. So we needed to evolve from that flash business to an always on business. And the real challenge is, and you mentioned before, paradox of choice, how do we evolve as a business without killing the essence of the business, which is uh, inspiration, curation, and value. So we needed to have that in mind when building a marketplace. So we, we could never build an Expedia or a booking.com because it's just, or a C trip, it just isn't what our business is and it would have killed the business. So what we needed to do is come up with a way for, to solve that problem. So our customers were telling us, we love, we love luxury escapes. We just, whatever we want, when we want to go somewhere, you don't have it. So how do we achieve both? So what we come up with was building, and it's live now in, in beta essentially, is building what we call our marketplace, which has two limbs. So uh, we call it the first limb is what we call our tactical office. So we're, we're, we're contracting hundreds, if not thousands of hotels around the world using channel managers and getting a, a, a virtuoso style deal, but direct, but B2C, not B2C. B to so we're, we've got, yeah, about 100 um, properties live now. I was waiting for our, our last couple of connections, our, our last couple of big connections to be done. We should get the sort of four or 500 deals on the site uh, in, in a couple of months. And, and those products are always on and may include free breakfast, may include a cocktail at night. They won't, they're not as, as deeply discounted as our flash deals, but they're still a really good, really good product. So especially if you're going to the UK and we've got three or four, we've got London, we've got three or four um, always on deals there. Chances are one of those will really appeal to you. So that's that part of the business. So we've been building that over the last so over 12 months. And what that meant is we had a team of 25 sales guys and girls, and they couldn't really do much because Flash was was dead over COVID. So the initial part of COVID. So what we said is, you guys, we want to keep you employed. We've got to get you going to some of marketplace. So completely new contracts with all these hotels and allowed us to get a running start. So that was actually really, really helpful. And then as part of that, building a whole bunch of other stuff around, building an itinerary, pro, uh, itinerary builder program, uh, we've got Caitlin and her team working on guest experience. So we're really trying to tackle every part of the funnel and improve it. So we want to be the world's most usable and loved travel platform. And we know once we'll have the best, we know we've got the best value product and we're working on the best user experience in the world. And I think we're well on the way. And that's, that's sort of the reason why we've got away with never raising capital and we're still investing really hard through COVID. So it's, um, we're really excited where the business is, is going. We think we've got 12 or 18 months left in the journey of stuff we need to do. Uh, but we're, we're definitely getting there. Uh, and, and once we're there, no doubt, hopefully your listeners come on, come and check out the site and see, well, you can buy everything. You'll be able to buy almost everything in the sort of five-star range, four or five-star range. You can get at booking.com, but for, with bonus inclusions and a much easier way to purchase. So I think it's a, our site's already significantly better than pre-COVID, but will be uh, measurably better. In, in this space of a few months. Fantastic. And that will be on uh, on the URL luxuryescapes.com? Exactly. So the dip, main difference is now is when you go to luxuryescapes.com, you'll see a search bar. So if you're yeah. sitting in Singapore, uh, and I know the borders aren't quite open yet, but when the Thailand borders open, you can type through a search for Phuket, there'll be 
three or four deals in Phuket that are always on 365 days a year. You can buy them anytime. You have to wait for that flash sale. And they're still great for amazing five-star properties and really good inclusions. And then if you see a flash deal that suits, you see Katakati come up, you can jump on that. But you know, there's always going to be an option there for you. We always have something, we've always got stuff in London, always got stuff in the US, in New York, in LA, in San Fran, in Chicago, in Seattle, et cetera. We'll have, we ideally want to have two or three properties in every destination across the world. Certainly every key destination. That becomes our our challenge in building up that marketplace, both from a product perspective and from a tech perspective. There's a lot of tech work that goes into these channel managers that we probably weren't cognizant of at the time, but but actually pretty excited. Again, we're getting through it pretty quickly. Fantastic. So it, probably capturing more ad hoc, shorter stay bookings than just compl complementing your existing model, which is obviously the vacation, the resorts and, and everything else. So um, that sounds fun. Yeah, it's, it's different. Definitely a bit of the short term and, and the short lead time. So there's definitely some of that. There's also, if we used to sell a trip to the Maldives, for example, which obviously as we talked about we're very good at, someone from Australia is not going straight to the Maldives. You, you've got to stop in Sri Lanka or Singapore or, or Dubai. So most people go by Singapore. You probably want to spend a couple of days in Singapore. We didn't have the product to sell. So now we can sell not just the Maldives. We can sell the flight to Singapore, the flight from Singapore to Maldives, to Malay. We can sell the two nights at Sofitel City, Bangkok in Singapore. We can sell your guns in the Bay passes we can sell you your um universal studios uh, uh, pass we can sell you your lounge access at Changi airport see a lounge access at, at melbourne airport or sydney airport and you do all this in amazing ux and we can sell you your, your, your plane your light plane in malay to to Finlu or wherever you're going so we're able to sell every every part of your, pro, your process and you're able to buy things on using an app really easily with, with one touch so there'll be there's lots of really exciting stuff we're building uh, and it's about how do we complete the user experience? So that's not just selling the flash hotel product, which we know we're great at, but how do we sell the whole holiday? How do we sell the average Australian who goes to the US for 22 days and stays in seven places? How do we sell the, every single hotel on that journey and every single, single experience and make it really easy and really seamless? And that's, that's the journey we're on now, but hopefully sort of 12 months, even less to get to a product that, that people just love. Well, fantastic. Congratulations to you and all the team, Adam, because that's clearly a lot of work, but great to look at it through a user experience lens because even having used various websites and corporate booking tools and and everything that they're rarely one click and and intuitive they've been very clunky and and yeah i'm sure you're able to disrupt and, and take some excellent business in that market so congratulations and, and hopefully the, the yeah. business will continue to be strong at the tail end of covid we hope hopefully that's our challenge i think we know that we can never beat the big OTAs on selection and breadth of selection because they're just, they're just too dominant. But what we can potentially win on is, is customer experience, user experience, and that customers hopefully continue to love us. And that's one of our real advantages, that 72 MPS. You just, you just don't see in the travel sector outside the sort of Abercrombie's. Like it's just a, a really rare thing that, that having that great customer love, always got to continue, to continue to earn that love and continue to provide really great products and really great service. Absolutely. So I've got some quick fire questions, Adam, if okay. Yeah. Do you have, you have a favorite book that you've given historically people as a gift? Um, more recently, I actually gave, I love Malcolm Gladwell. So I'm sure if you've read Outliers and he's got this, this book called David and Goliath, which is probably not his, his highest rated book, but I loved it. And it's about uh, underdogs essentially. And one of the underdogs he focuses on people who have dyslexia and I love to give that book to people who have kids who are dyslexic because it just shows that the, many of the best entrepreneurs, arguably one of the best lawyers in the US, are dyslexic. Uh, and, and just to, to make to display that encouragement because 
and he's in whilst it appears to be a, a handicap, it's actually really a big advantage. Uh, so I, I love I love to give that book. Um, I love Barbarians at the Gate. Um, I wrote a book back in 2010, which not many people have read, but <laughs> I, I give that away if somebody wanted it. But um, but yeah, no, I, I love Gladwell. I think his 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 lessons are so relevant to so many people that that's what I really try and give to where I can. Uh, no, that is, it's, it's a fantastic book. I, I remember the, um, he talks about a trader that jumps in a taxi down in Wall Street and uh, learns absolutely everything about the business during the taxi drive to, to um, exactly. JFK and then ma manages to ace a job interview having never never worked in bonds, yeah. trading or, or anything at all. And they that said- was, um, Gary, uh, Gary Cohn, I think he became CEO yeah. of Goldman Sachs or became CFO of Goldman Sachs and became treasury secretary. So yeah, it's a great story. And I think he yeah. was dyslexic as well from memory. So yeah. So, so what was your, your book called? Uh, my book was called Pigs of the Trough, which was a book <laughs> on, so for my corporate law days, uh, I'm also a business writer uh, for, in, in my spare time. And I, I wrote a book, it was an Amazon bestseller, but that's actually not that hard to achieve. Uh, but basically, on the on the global financial crisis and its impact on on Australia and specific Australia, I, I basically um, profiled eight or nine Australian businesses that either failed or struggled during the the pandemic, uh, the, the global financial crisis, and went in depth on the on the basically executive greed and and stuff that wasn't done very well. Um, doesn't happen that much. It doesn't happen as much anymore. But I spent about six months writing that, and, and I think launched in two thousand eleven or so. Pigs at the trough. So we'll give that a good shout yeah. out. Uh, yeah. is, is it on order, Audible? Uh, I don't know, actually. It's definitely on Amazon. Um, yeah. No one's asked me to narrate it, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so it's certainly on Amazon. Uh, it's certainly out pretty easily. Oh, well, well done for writing a book. Another massive accomplishment. Uh, anyway. So po post-COVID, where, where would be the first destination you'd like to head to? And where would you choose to stay and eat? Uh, I think the first I've got my my wife's from from London, uh, from like yourself, and uh, we should be heading to the UK as soon as we can. My my kids haven't seen their grandparents for almost two years now, uh, so absolutely uh, UK's number one on the list. And then the, obviously we love love going to Fiji. The Fijian people are amazing, uh, so can't wait to get back to John Michelle uh, and Hilton there. I'd love to get back to Maldives. Uh, I haven't done a African safari. The list is pretty long, Gareth, and we had a, we did a really good cruise last year. So I'd love to get that we had a cruise booked. One of our many COVID cancellations. So uh, yeah, quite a few things we'd love to do, but but all in good time. Thank you, Adam. That's a superb list. UK, Fiji, Africa, as well as a cruise. Melbourne has one of the world's best dining scenes. Uh, if you, if you were not on lockdown, where would you recommend for a, a Saturday night dining in Melbourne and why? Uh, well, I'm, my wife's vegan and I'm vegetarian now. So we got a place called Smith and Daughters, which is just an incredible vegetarian restaurant up there with some of the best um, in the world. Uh, I think, I think uh, 11 Madison now, I think I've got the name right, or 10 Madison has become vegetarian, which is number one in the world. Like, probably not quite that standard, but it is outstanding so we love going there um restaurant called maha and Udamont. there's just some really good restaurants in melbourne uh we're, we're certainly spoiled for choice here um and even someone who obviously we're sort of restricted on what we can eat there's this there's, there's some amazing options uh so yeah smith and daughters uh anybody who's in melbourne who, who who's listening and hasn't been down there uh it's it's exceptional uh and shannon who runs it does, does a fantastic job so next time you're in melbourne be sure to check out smith and daughters You've probably made your own in, in terms of what's your favorite documentary and why? Uh, 
that's a great question. I, I think the one, the, the one that, um, oh, I'm just trying to think of what, what is my favourite one. I'll probably have to go for Last Dance. I think it's hard to go part of oh, sporting, sporting, not business. Um, maybe it was timing because everybody was in lockdown when it was on last year, but I, I don't recall loving a show, a documentary as much as I love that. And did, did, did you grow up when Jordan and the Bulls were doing particularly well? No, I was I was in my my school years when he was around doing those three two three beats. So, uh, yeah, it was. But I was never a big. I was I played Australian football, Australian was football. So I was never a big basketball player. But like you just knew all those players from back then. So I remember speaking to my friends about it. We'd reminisce about those days. And basketball's made a bit of a resurgence lately here. Um, but yeah, that was. And I think obviously the timing as well, given it was was everyone was locked out. Most of the world was locked out at that point. So. Um, yeah, I think it just it was the perfect perfect documentary for the perfect time. It's hard to go past past that one. That's great. And two years ago, Australia managed to beat the US in Melbourne, right? When they came down to to play. I think so. Yeah, I think we've we, we, we had a few good players over the years, and there's quite a few good players playing in the NBA now. Um, uh, excellent Simmons, and there's some some really good players uh, around. So I think I think we could be in a bit of a golden era for Australia, a bit like our soccer team in '06. I think we've got a so three or four years of, of potentially strong success on the world stage excellent and what are your morning rituals what do, what do you spend the, the first 60 minutes of the day doing typically uh, i tend to get up call it 5 30 5 40 and do about half an hour of work so catch up on, on emails overnight then i'll do go for a run or maybe have a hit of golf if i can or, or do apple fitness at home so i'll do something pretty much every day and then the kids get up to just after seven so my wife does the same um I'll try and do a bit more work through the morning before officially start check out all our data from the previous day. So there's a bunch of reports I'll look at. So as I do it probably before nine o'clock, I've tried to do like sort of an hour, just over an hour's work and try and get an hour's exercise in. Thanks, Adam. A really strong way of starting the day and setting you up for success. Excellent. And then outside of luxury escapes, you're involved with many other business activities as well as philanthropic ventures. Are you able to talk about some of your passions and some of the sorry the initiatives that you're involved with uh yeah i, I think we're lucky enough um jeremy myself and, and mark and josh as well lucky enough to to be involved in a number of different businesses so i'm on sort of eight or nine different boards uh and to try and help out just and, and mentor a bunch of people i think it's pretty common um and we consider ourselves obviously we're a travel business but we're also sort of in the tech space so it's pretty common for for people in the tech space to to do that and to try and pay it forward to it to a degree because recognizing how lucky we've been uh, along the way any number of different sort of fact any number of different instances had an enormous amount of luck to get to the business to where it where it is now uh so i think we're just cognizant of that and we just love helping next generation next generation after next generation entrepreneurs uh reach their potential and that could be via simply help providing guidance when somebody calls me up or, or investing or being on the board so different levels uh and involved in some amazing businesses like like blue thumb like Bookwell, which are australian-based marketplaces and also spend a bit of time on, on not-for-profit boards, uh, we're involved in a, a cancer charity and save the children investment committee. So lucky enough to be able to help out across, across a spectrum of different different things. And, and like yourself, I've got a, a podcast that I host and, and write articles for a, a, an Australian easing called Crikey. Uh, and I have done for a number of years. So I try to keep myself busy across the sort of spectrum of, of mentorship, uh, journalism um, and, and investment. Sitting on nine boards, as well as your luxury escapes while 
and your journalistic commitments is exceptional, mate. Excellent. You talked briefly there about your podcast. Is it possible just to, to give a bit of a description and then people that would want to listen and subscribe where they can find it? Thanks, Gaffer Plug. It's, it's not that different to yours, but obviously you've got a great focus on the travel space, whereas I focus more on some entrepreneurialism. And, and our first episode got launched last week and it's done really well. And our second gets launched uh, tomorrow, working with Listener, one of the big distributors in Australia. Uh, and essentially to me having a conversation, not, not indifferent to what we're doing, but, but rather not in the travel space, outside the travel space. So talk about uh, entrepreneurs and how they built their business and, and what's gone right, what's gone wrong, the, the pitfalls and uh, how to raise capital, how they raise capital, how they grew the business. Um, and hopefully just try to, get, and, and just also the, the, the story underlying the business. There's always a great story there. Uh, there usually is a great story there. So how do we get the emotion and the raw emotion out, which, which some episodes comes out really well, sometimes less so. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the, the audience isn't merely business people. The audience is, is anybody who loves stories and who loves mm-hmm. the story of success. Uh, and that, that's where we want to get to and still very early days. So who knows if anybody will listen. But also, I guess it could could be a really powerful and important resource for people that, like you mentioned, how tough it was for you guys. And now with the different templates, resources that people have, they may, might not already be aware what's available. So if they listen to your podcast, it might be uh, very educational, allow a few people to start up businesses that might might not have been able to do so otherwise. 100%. And, that, and if, we can get, if one person listens and starts a great business, that's a, a massive success. So it's... Uh... As you know, it, take, it takes it can take a little while to build a big audience. You, you've done an amazing job building your audience so well. Uh, this is a challenge. It's another challenge that that, we, that we're, we're doing, and and hopefully we can get some listeners. But but it's been great fun doing it, and get to speak to great people like like you do. And um, yeah, it's, it's been really enjoyable so far. Adam, thank, thanks ever so much for your time. It, it's been uh, incredibly incredibly powerful. Certainly. Uh, Amazing to hear how Luxury Escapes is moving now into the marketplace. Uh, the power of doubling the Maldivian travel uh, tourists from Australia shows the, the impact you can have on, on travel globally. And uh, yeah, nothing but you know thanks and, and best wishes for you and all the team in, in the next chapter. Thanks, Matt. thanks for all your help. Obviously, over the years, you've been a great partner of ours. And, and congratulations on your incredible success with the podcast. It's, it's fantastic and, and really flattered to be asked and humbled to, to be on the show. Thank you for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to join Untold, Adam. It's truly most appreciated.